From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Refunds under the taxpayer's Bill of Rights will stay in your pocket. Voters defeated Prop CC. We'll ask the measure's author what comes next. Then, libraries in Delta County say they'll reduce service after a tax measure fails there. Plus, the mayor's race in Aurora. And later, the superintendent of one of Colorado's largest school districts sent a stern letter to families saying, I am ashamed of what I saw as a representation of our community, what he's referring to. Plus, everyday objects become difficult to manage when someone has dementia. Cars, power tools, guns. How to broach those tough conversations before it's too late. I would advocate that anyone who has firearms in their home think about what they want to happen eventually with those. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The taxpayer's Bill of Rights will stay intact. That's after the double-digit defeat of Proposition CC, a measure that would have allowed the state to keep refunds that would otherwise be yours. Coloradans love Tabor. They love our taxpayer's Bill of Rights. That is Amy Oliver Cook. Tuesday night, she helped lead the fight against CC. The democratically controlled legislature referred the measure to voters, hoping to spend the refund money on transportation and education. So what happened and what now? I'm joined once again by Democratic House Speaker Casey Becker, who basically wrote CC, and Michael Fields, who opposed it. Fields leads Colorado Rising Action. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us on. Thank you for having us, Ryan. All right. Speaker, as we mentioned, this wasn't just a defeat. The margin appears to be in the double digits. What do you think happened? I, you know, I think we did the best job we could. I think it's a tough issue to communicate to voters about. Uh, it, the turnout was down and there was a pretty robust no campaign. I think people are confused by the fact that in Colorado, we are the only state in the nation that requires the the voters to give permission for the legislature to use the taxes it already has. That's a confusing thing for people, and they they didn't um, they didn't believe that. And you know, they also were getting some misinformation about wait, I don't get to keep my tax refunds. This had nothing to do with your tax refunds. You know, is this going to take away my senior homestead exemption? No, it has nothing to do with your senior homestead exemption. So there was misinformation, and it's just generally a tough issue to communicate on. And we had low turnout. I don't regret having the conversation. I think, you know, talking to voters about how low we fund our our roads, how poorly we fund our schools, our higher ed institutions is a really important conversation to have. So I'm glad we brought it forth and I'm glad voters know more about those things now than probably they did six months ago. You know, it sounds to me like you are putting a lot of this on the voter. The voter's confused. The voter is misinformed and there's no reflection on the quality of this measure. I think that the ballot language was clear. I think we did the best we could. I think it's, I think, you know, Colorado has, Colorado voters have been asked several times, can we increase taxes or, or can we keep these taxes? And it's really hard to get done. I, I, these are tough things. We're the only state in the nation that requires voter approval to raise taxes or to keep revenue. Uh, I, I don't blame voters for voting no. I, we could, but it takes money to run a campaign. It takes money to communicate. It takes 
um, a lot of, uh, you know, time and effort and education. But I will also say, I think it is a reflection that, you know, voters don't trust the legislature right now. Voters were told, oh, you can't trust that they're actually going to spend this money on roads and education, and they believed that. So I do think that there's something that we in the legislature can do better to build trust. Okay, let me ask you about that in just a bit. But Michael Fields, do you agree with that takeaway? Voters don't trust the legislature with these dollars. I think that was a big part of it. Obviously, the fact that it was permanent, too, uh, was another thing. I, I think it was a, a big win for the taxpayers' Bill of Rights yesterday. Um, you know, you look at it, and in August, our side was down 24 points. Uh, we ended up getting outspent two to one. I thought the ballot language was very difficult. So the the margin that we ended up with was a little bit surprising. Um, but, you know, when you look at it, we won unaffiliated voters. And that's really uh, what sways things here in Colorado. The enthusiasm on our side was pretty high. You could see it on social media, people commenting on it, talking about it. Um, and I do think there was a reaction to some of the perceived overreach at the legislature this last year and a lack of trust uh, that the government won't prioritize with the current money they have. All right. Let's... Uh probe further on that, Michael Fields. So CC would have raised money for roads, transportation and education, K-12 and higher. Uh, You think that government should live within its means. Where would you make cuts to support spending in those areas or would you? I think that you don't need to make cuts when your budget's going up by 1.5 billion dollars a year. Where would you make shifts? Uh, But I think the the governor uh, actually put out a budget last week. And looking at that budget, he did give more money towards transportation, more money. We've been giving more money towards education. I think the key is fixing that for locking it in for the long term, that he's putting $550 million into roads. We're going to need to bond that money uh, in the future and make sure that that keeps coming in and that we don't move that money out of there. And and in education, I think we do need to change the funding formula. uh, And we talked about this earlier. But the education funding formula is unfair for a lot of districts. It puts pressure on the state. I think we have to have that discussion uh, with the current state that we're in. All right, Casey Becker, Speaker of the House. What does this portend for the legislative session that starts in January? What changes do you make, uh, given that Prop CC has failed? Well, the the current budget that the governor presented is written to existing law, so it is it didn't. Um, it's not going to change. We're going to keep focusing on. Uh, the core values of Coloruns and the core values that our our general fund is supposed to cover. Our general fund covers education, it covers human services, healthcare, prisons, and it's more and more covering transportation. So we're going to keep doing those things. Uh, The fact that we have a limit on how much the the budget can grow, and yet costs are growing faster than that, is going to be a problem. You know, we're 48th in the country for higher ed. We're about 48th for K-12 spending. There's no additional room in the general fund to do better by those things unless you're um, cutting prisons, cutting health care, taking people off Medicaid. So it's going to be a challenge. What do you do? to change what you see as a lack of trust in the legislature by voters? I think that's something we will have conversations about. I think they want to know where their dollars are going, and we need to do a better job of explaining that. A better job of explaining. So I I think that's what we're going to focus. 
yeah, I think that's what we're going to focus on is, is how can voters get more information more readily? How can they uh, feel like the budget's more transparent? How can they see it in their communities? I feel like that's what the Democrats say after virtually every statewide tax measure fails. We just need to get better information out. Why aren't Democrats better at this? <laughs> uh, you know, I... We like to solve problems and we see real problems in, you know, these unique laws, unique to Colorado that say, gosh, you can have a growing economy, but you're not going to let the state budget grow from that. Uh, that says, you know, you're, the state's going to have a bigger and bigger responsibility over local funding to fund things that local governments and uh, people used to fund locally. So these are hard things to explain, right? We didn't, it used to be that schools were funded two-thirds locally and one-third by the state. Now it's two-thirds by the state. So there's a lot of pressure on our budget. And And there's uh, the the Gordian knot, so to speak, of all of the measures in the state constitution that dictate funding, which, you know, is not the easiest thing to understand. In just about the last minute, guys, uh, do you think anything about this election uh, tells us about what's ahead in 2020? Give you about uh, 30 seconds, Michael Fields. Um, I think there's momentum that comes from this, but uh, it's hard to know. It's still early. You don't know who nominees are going to be for different stuff. You don't know what ballot issues are going to be on. Uh, but I think there's definitely uh, momentum in terms of, on, on our side, of making sure that we don't repeal the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, et cetera. So, Do you think this is also about keeping in check a legislature that is democratically controlled, a governor's office that is democratically controlled. I think absolutely. And I think the margin shows that. Okay. And uh, Speaker, just in the last few seconds, do you think this portends anything for 2020? So this was low turnout and a tough issue. I think Democrats it's, it's are going to It's not terribly off on. in terms of turnout. I just want to be clear. It's not hugely off of uh, a, a non-major election. Okay. Well, again, I think we're going to keep focusing on the things that we think uh, reflect Colorado values. We think people want to be investing in education and transportation. Um, but during the legislative session, I don't expect us to bring any for- bring forward any additional revenue measures that'll go to voters. Uh, I, voters said they don't want to do this, and so um, I hear that. You hear that. All right. Thanks so much, Speaker. And Michael, thank you. Thank you. Democratic. Speaker of the House Casey Becker of Boulder and Michael Fields, Executive Director of Colorado Rising Action, who is opposed to Prop CC, which has failed. Let's turn now to the other statewide decision voters made this election. That's whether to enable sports betting. The metaphors just write themselves with this story because Prop DD was a super close call all night. So is it a photo finish, a game with extra innings? It does appear to be successful. Tax revenue will help pay for water projects in Colorado connected with DD. More on that in a moment. But CPR's Ben Marcus is here to break down the results and how sports betting rolls out. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's start with the vote itself. Just about a 50-50 split. The margin is still small, right? So I just checked the results on my phone, and uh, DD is up by 13,000 votes right now. And this is out of 1.4 million ballots cast. So this is very, very close. But the supporters of sports gambling tell me that there aren't enough no-vote counties out there coming in to overcome this lead. They feel pretty good that this is going to pass. Okay, do we know which counties are the deciding factor? 
Um, I would Denver and Pitt King County were both in 60%. Um, Douglas County voted for it, which was somewhat surprising. Weld County wasn't uh, as as bad as, as supporters of DD had hoped or had thought, feared. Feared, right. Um, so it looked somewhat like Democrat-Republican uh, party lines, but not really as well. Sports gambling kind of scrambles that a little bit. Okay, you've been covering this issue really from the start. Given that there was no organized opposition to this measure, does it surprise you that the vote is so close? Yeah, I don't think anybody expected it to be this close. I think part of the problem was the ballot language is kind of confusing. It's not clear who this tax was on. Right. And now, so this the started ad, with that Tabor language, right? Shall taxes be increased? By $29 million, which sounds like a lot to people, uh-huh. but is a small portion of the general fund budget. And is a tax on casinos. On casinos. And so they, their ads were like, it's on casinos, it's on casinos, not you. <laughs> um, so trying to clear clarify that ballot language, they had $2 million to do it, so they had money behind them. But I think part of the problem here is that Coloradans have historically not been amenable to expanding gambling too much. We confined casinos to three mountain towns. We have rejected expanding casino games into Aurora in the past. And so I think that there was um, some pushback from Coloradans that's historically been there. Just briefly, how does sports betting work? In Colorado, how's this going to look? So, if this passes, uh, casinos can open sports books in their mountain towns. So they can also open uh, mobile apps, so you could bet from anywhere without ever having to step in to a Blackhawk casino. You could fund the app right from your phone and make those bets, even while you're sitting at the game. You're at Mile High, and you want to bet uh, bet on whether or not that field goal makes it in. You can do it right there from your seat. So this is a bigger expansion of gambling than I think people realize. CPR's Ben Marcus there, and so Prop DD establishes a 10% tax on casinos. House winnings to benefit Colorado's water plan. Lauren Riss is deputy director at the Colorado Water Conservation Board. The water plan was developed in 2015, and ever since then, we haven't had a dedicated funding source to implement a lot of the goals and actions in the water plan. We have used some available cash funding that we have as an agency but we don't have anything that was intended to be a permanent funding source, and that's what DD would provide us. On a local level, many cities and counties made decisions about library funding, 11 across the state. It appears seven will pass, not in Delta County, though, says spokeswoman Tracy Inot, who was holding back tears. We're all going to be saddened by this. I mean, the reality is the library district will still exist, and we're going to continue to provide the best possible library services for Delta County within the constraints that we have. Because it's clear that, at least at this time, the voters of Delta County do not support restoring hours and expanding services. In the months to come, what that means is that we will be further reducing hours, services, and programs. Meanwhile, Denver voters said yes to establishing a distinct transportation department. This could pave the way for the city to operate its own transit system someday. Here's Dave Sachs from our sister publication, Denverite. This basically means for Denver that more people, about 1,100 people, will be working on transportation issues compared to 125 a couple years ago. Um, And the idea is Um, that by elevating this department to a cabinet-level position that's reporting directly to the mayor, projects will be elevated, mostly having to do with walking, biking, and transit. These things are now baked into the city charter. All right. Mike Hoffman has the lead this morning in the Aurora mayor's race. Aurora is Colorado's third-largest city and arguably its most diverse 
We're going to borrow a page from Aurora's motto now and look to the future with Kaufman, who's poised to take the helm of a community that faces some big challenges, rising housing costs, transportation woes, and tension between police and communities of color. And uh, Mike, welcome back to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. Let's start with the vote. At last check, uh, what's your lead? We get 5%? I think it's about 5%, 5 or 6% lead. Okay. And how do you feel about that? Are you prepared to declare victory? Oh, I think I'm going to wait till more votes come in. But I, if mathematically, it'd be very tough to, to overturn that lead, given the fact that the, the vast majority of votes have been counted. Have you spoken... Uh, at all with the candidate in second place, Omar Montgomery? No, point. not yet. Not okay. yet. So it's with all of those provisos that we speak with you sure. right now. You're a military veteran, a near lifelong resident of Aurora. I uh, understand you moved there as a kid. Uh, most recently, you represented the city in Congress as a Republican. Uh, and before that, you were Colorado Secretary of State and Treasurer. Lots of hats you've worn in this state. What project do you undertake in Aurora day one? Oh, day one. Well, certainly, uh, I think um, the crime issue is important uh, from a, not just from um, a law enforcement perspective, but obviously from a community perspective in, in trying to uh, heal the divisions uh, between uh, law enforcement and, and the community. The, uh, but, but I think obviously want to set the city on a different course. And, and that is uh, Aurora is just too large to continue as a bedroom community. Uh, it's the classic definition of a bedroom community that is heavy on residential, uh, where the majority of residents commute somewhere else for employment. So the majority of workers in Aurora actually work outside of Aurora. And so that, we just can't continue along that path. You want more of an of, employment base in Aurora. We have to have more of an employment base. It, it reduces pressure on the transportation uh, system, better on the environment where people are commuting less. Uh, so I want them to work in the community that they live. We need a commercial center. We need a cultural center. We need uh, an identity, again, other than being a suburban community. We're the 56th largest city in America. Uh, we are one of the, the most diverse cities in America. And so uh, 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 I want Aurora to have its own identity. Uh, and, and so that's very important. And, but that's a, that's a hard, you know, path to take in terms of it's not going to happen overnight. So it sounds to me like recruiting new companies and sure. perhaps encouraging those mm -hmm. that are already there. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to reflect a little bit on the tension between police sure. and communities of color, because in August, the Aurora Police Department was involved in the death of a young unarmed right. black man, 23-year-old Elijah McLean. According to the lawyer for McLean's family, police body camera footage, uh, which has not been released to the public, shows officers using a chokehold on an already subdued McLean. He later died of cardiac arrest. Is that case illustrative to you of the larger problem you've spoken of so far? I don't think so. However... You don't think so? No. Uh, but, the, but the fact is that one case is too many. And I, and I think that when you have uh, an issue like this, it kind of, it, it, is it, how much does it um, compare to the situation that we just had in Colorado Springs? Uh, I don't know because all the facts aren't out. Uh, but I do know this. I do know that, that there is tension. I do know that, that justice uh, is important and this issue has to be resolved to where the community has confidence uh, in law enforcement. 
Do One you thing. have confidence in Aurora law enforcement? No organization is going to be perfect. And, and organizations are going to make mistakes. It's a question, are the, is there a pattern to these mistakes or is it an aberration? Uh, and so I need to get in there and, and see. I believe that this issue uh, is an aberration, but, but one issue is, is one issue too many. And, and it has to be resolved to where the community, and there has to be a process uh, for resolving these issues where the community has confidence. I mean, uh, Chief Metz is leaving. Yeah, let me say that uh, the police yeah. chief in Aurora, Nick Metz, stepping down at the end of the year. And, and I think what he did that was very important uh, is, and this is with the, his, this issue now is with the African-American community that we have to resolve. But what he did is what is so important is he was really out there uh, in all the different communities, particularly the immigrant communities. And that's really important because they inherently don't have confidence in law enforcement because generally they've come from countries where the police are very corrupt, where the police are not a force of good. And so their cooperation with law enforcement inherently isn't great. And so he was able to engender that kind of trust. And so I think whoever becomes the next chief of police really needs to be somebody that's going to be out in our diverse communities. Uh, we have less than a minute. How much of your focus do you think uh, the immigration detention center in Aurora run by the controversial GEO group? How much do you think that will require of you? Well, unfortunately, I think it's going to require a lot. And I think that, but it, but it is a symptom of a greater problem. And a greater the greater problem is this. It's not the GEO facility. It's that we have a broken immigration system that has to be fixed. And so that to, to I think, energy focused on the GEO facility in and of itself is misdirected that it has to be focused on fixing our immigration system as a whole. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Mike Kaufman is leading in the race to be the next mayor of Aurora. Now, the story of a voter, one of our producers, actually, he has an Aurora address, but he didn't get to vote in the mayor's race. This wasn't a ballot error. It's a reality that befalls many Coloradans, says Secretary of State Jenna Griswold. Technically, he does not live in Aurora. This is actually pretty common where people live in unincorporated areas, but their addresses list a city, uh, but they technically don't live in the city. So where else might such a scenario arise? Adams County, Arapahoe County, Larimer County, it's pretty common to tell you the truth. Griswold adds that some people have a Denver address but live in a different county altogether like Adams. It's a function of postal codes. An Adams County official tells us it's possible to put Denver on a letter to someone in Thornton and have it delivered. It makes mass mailings very difficult, he added. Abhorrent and disgusting. That's how the superintendent of one of Colorado's largest school districts described the behavior of students and parents recently. Jason Glass put those words in a letter after that intense winter storm last week. Jefferson County Schools had used a new tool to them, a two-hour delayed start. The reaction was swift and sometimes ugly. Is this who we really are? Is this who we wish to be? Glass wrote. And Superintendent, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. What sorts of behavior led you to use the words abhorrent and disgusting? Well, when we looked at the stream of social media comments and then also the calls that were coming into the district um, that day uh, that we had the two-hour delay, it was just a, 
a cesspool of the very worst elements of human nature. Um, so things that were uh, attacking um, people personally, um, uh, things I would characterize as bullying that were going at um, uh, identity, age, gender, um, crossing just all sorts of lines of civility and respect and really an overstated way given that what we were talking about was a, a, a weather delay for a school system, which is something that happens in Colorado. So it, we're in a different sort of world or era um, is, is the feeling that we had based on the reactions that we saw. Yeah. Uh, in your letter, you also write, perhaps it's a reflection of our present culture and civic state that such behavior is acceptable. I love this community and this country, and I say enough. Uh, who are you referring to there? Are you referring to the president? Well, I think the president contributes to this, but he's not alone in that. Um, and we see all sorts of political actors and leaders and uh, forces from inside and outside uh, our country that are seeking to create these divisions. Um, and I think, especially when it comes to a school system, everybody in the community loves their children and wants them to be successful. It ought to be an a policy area or something that we work on where we can come together as a community. Um, and so these sorts of reactions are having a greater effect than just when it comes to the, to the snow day or that, that decision. Um, I, I think that um, it's leading to increased instances of uh, reported bullying with our students. Uh, we have one of the highest suicide rates in the country for students and for adults here in Colorado. Um, so there's something troubling about this entire trend of sort of cleaving divi divisions among people and then attacks that uh, is di disturbing to me as a, as a school leader. What were the frustrations that families were expressing? I, I do want to at least address what might have set them off. And did you learn anything as a result of this? And I, I understand the behavior is unacceptable, but what, is, what was the underlying message? Well, weather cancellations are ultimately subjective judgments. Um, and you look at the information that you have at the time when you have to make the decision, um, and you make the best call that you can. Uh, there are all sorts of reasons to delay or cancel school, and there are also all sorts of reasons not to. Uh, when we cancel school, we have thousands of kids in Jeffco that don't have a hot meal that day. Uh, we disrupt thousands of businesses, um, and we have kids that miss out on experiences that we can't recreate uh, for a number of reasons. So there are pressures for us to make sure that we serve the community and remain open when we can. Is it that families were hoping you'd cancel outright? That's exactly right. And uh, that day, uh, we had several other front-range districts that did cancel school completely. Uh, Jeffco and Boulder and St. Vrain decided to be on a two-hour delay. Mm -hmm. So I think that difference uh, was one of the sort of divisions that, that we saw. This letter, it feels exceptional for a superintendent to write it. Did it feel exceptional to you to put pen to paper or <laughs> no one puts pen to paper anymore, but, you know, fingers to keyboard? I think we were really taken aback um, and upset by the tone and tenor and the um, uh, aggressiveness of the calls and the, the messages. Did and any of it rise, by the way, to wanting to contact law enforcement? Like, was well, it we, threatening? we... Um, stored all of those. So we took screenshots. We have um, the, the most sort of vile, threatening comments were phone calls. Um, and so 
we haven't referred any of those to law enforcement so far, okay. uh, but we did collect all of that data. Uh, when we have parents who behave this way, if they're threatening us, we're going to refer them to law enforcement. Um, if they're being verbally abusive, we're going to hang up on people. And if this is online behavior, if it's one on one of the district's forums, uh, we don't allow that sort of behavior there. So we remove those posts. Uh, and if they're students, we have a student code of conduct. So if you said something like this in person, there would be a consequence. And uh, that will be the case for online statements as well. And we want to be careful that we're... Uh, we're not s- starting to sort of quash or discourage people from speaking their minds. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a democracy, disagreements happen. That's part of how this works. Um, we want to encourage people to uh, be critical, offer their perspective, uh, call us when they think that we made a mistake. I think that's part of it. But when we start attacking people personally and um, especially some of the sort of bullying or identity attacks that we saw, we really are into something else. And that's not okay. It's not acceptable, um, especially of a, as a community where we're trying to uh, prepare kids for their future. And we see some of the behaviors from adults that students are emulating that are really problematic. And how do you change this then? I mean, a letter is one thing. You, you can't assume, of course, that every family has read this. Does this become some kind of teachable moment in the classroom? Well, that's exactly right. It's a teachable moment in the classroom and it's a teachable moment in the community. Um, so we have all these forces around us that are sort of creating these divisions and a lack of civility. And we as a community can decide how we want to respond to that and how we want to treat each other. And that's the question that needs to be raised at this point. Thanks very much for being with us, Superintendent. I appreciate your time. Thank you. He's Jason Glass, Superintendent of Jefferson County Schools, one of the state's largest districts. To quote a letter he wrote, he's calling on families better angels. Abby Jones was the poster child for how to give up your cell phone. She even gave a TEDx talk that went viral. It was hard for me to admit that maybe life without a phone was a better life for me. But as CPR health reporter John Daly explains, reality has proven more complicated. When Abby gave that TED talk to a Denver audience, it was a moment of triumph. It felt like a burden had been lifted from my shoulders. That burden had ordinary origins. Abby got her first smartphone when she got to middle school. She felt great listening to her favorite tunes, the Beatles, Billy Joel, Elton John. But at other times, social media was making her... Really depressed because I was like, oh, I have like two friends and they have like 1,000 followers. Comparing myself to them was definitely a mistake, but I couldn't help it. Abby, who lives in Denver, found it especially hard dealing with friends. A while ago, I lost some friends, and I was following them on Instagram, and I would see them all doing things together, and I would get really sad that I wasn't invited. We call it FOMO, fear of missing out. And whenever I would lose my phone, I would get a lot of FOMO, and that would also cause a lot of depression and anxiety because I would get really anxious. Like, what if somebody invited me to something that I missed, and but nobody ever did? <laughs> That troubled Abby's mom, Brooke. Abby was using her phone four or five hours a day, and Brooke found some things on it she didn't like. So she took Abby's phone away. And that was when she had a meltdown and said, I hate you. But over time, 
Abby changed her mind to see her relationship with her phone as an addiction. More than half of teens say they spend too much time on their cell phones, according to a recent study. It's toxic and unhealthy. Like, I'll be just sitting in the lunchroom talking with my friends, and you can see some of the girls sitting next to each other, literally messaging each other on their phones. Very bemused by it. It's very odd. Bemused, that's very good. (laughs) That's a vocab word at my school right now. So Abby decided to tell her tale in a very public way. I'm 12 years old and currently in seventh grade. I know, you're jealous. (laughs) Don't be. It's insanely stressful. Abby told an audience of hundreds of adults to turn off their cell phones. Then she educated them on being a teen in today's hyperconnected world, obsessed with chasing social media likes and followers. Real life disappeared and was replaced by the fake life of Instagram. And then my phone, my everything, was taken away for a whole month. Abby said it was weird at first. She even got the sensation of a phone vibrating in her pocket called Phantom Vibration Syndrome. (laughs) I know, scary. But by the end of the month, without her phone, Abby said she felt liberated. I no longer had to worry about checking who else had followed me or what new messages I had. Abby's bottom line, parents need to do what hers did. Take control, monitor phone usage, and tell the kids they're doing it. I need the parents and guardians out there to start being parents to their kids not friends. Abby's talk was a hit. When it got posted on YouTube, it was viewed tens of thousands of times. The Today Show invited Abby and Brooke for an interview. Why was it so important for you to give that speech? Because of all of the um, negative mental and... The principal at her middle school even sent a link of her TED Talk to the parents of all of her classmates. Some parents started to crack down on their kids' phone access. I think a lot of kids got impacted by it, which felt good when they weren't all really mad at me. Abby was the kid who'd figured it all out, the poster child for successfully managing the social media monster. Except, not really. My mom has a picture of me backstage at my TED Talk, back on Instagram, on my phone. So yeah, even after doing my TED Talk, it's still been a struggle. I spoke to Abby and Brooke at the home they share with their two cats. Come here. Good boy. Brooke described Abby's struggle with all the emotions triggered by apps and her phone. She says after the TED Talk, they thought... Everything was going to be great because, boy, we've put this message out there and that's it. She solved this problem. But in reality... Everything just sort of like went downhill from there, which was surprising. Because I wouldn't say that I was super addicted to my phone at that point. But I think it... It's all tied in. Abby's parents once again wrestled with how much to allow Abby to be on her phone. Brooke says it was hard. As a parent, I struggle with letting her have it, taking it away, letting her have it back, because for kids now, it's really their lifeline. And so taking that away is, it makes me feel awful. It makes me feel like a terrible parent that I would disconnect her on purpose from her friends, but I also know, I know my kid, and I know that she is struggling when she is on that device. She will look at her Instagram and say, Mom, I can't believe she just put this picture up 
two minutes ago and she already has 35 likes. And, you know, and I'm like, what? Who cares? But I'm 45 years old. I, I don't care. I'm not 13. Things came to a head last summer. On a trip with her grandparents, Abby got free reign over the phone, so she quickly got lost in it again. Brooke got mad and put on strict restrictions. I didn't allow her to have access to the Internet or texting, and you turn around and she's on the Internet or texting. I've had these restrictions on my phone for quite a while, so I've found a lot of ways to, to get around them. Abby can't quite give up her phone by herself, even though she can see the upside. I've definitely come to accept that it's not a big deal if somebody has more followers than you or more likes than you. It was freeing that I just didn't have to worry about it anymore. And now I don't have, like, any apps on my phone anymore. I don't have Instagram, that's for sure. And it's, it's a great feeling. But sometimes Abby does feel isolated. Recent research shows teens who use social media a lot are more likely to develop mental health problems, like depression and anxiety. Still, Abby and her mom say it's not an easy thing to let go. I do struggle with it, and she still struggles with it. And I don't know what the answer is. My, the answer of taking away the phone completely is not going to work for everybody. And letting them have free reign of it doesn't really work either. So there's some balance. I think it's family-specific. Honestly, I think the only reason that I'm still not addicted to my phone is because of my parents putting restrictions on it. Even after doing my TED Talk and going on the Today Show, I would say I would still be addicted if it weren't for my parents. Even after all her struggles, Abby sees her relationship with social media as a work in progress. I'm John Daly, CPR News. It's a tough conversation to start. A loved one has dementia, and things that were once safe for them may no longer be, like driving, or less talked about, owning a gun. Well, there's a new resource to help you start those conversations and make the difficult choices. The website Safety in Dementia launched this week. Emergency physician Dr. Emmy Betts of CU Anschutz helped create it, and welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. What makes these conversations so touchy? Well, I think that certainly, you know, when we think about driving, I think that's often really linked to people's sense of identity and their, you know, reminder of being young and free and on the roads. And I think for many people, having a firearm can be similar. It may be it was part of their job. It may be their lifelong hunter or rancher. And so I think that's where these conversations are harder maybe than some other topics because they can be really linked to how somebody feels about themselves. And to freedom, as you've said. On the the gun side of this, I understand gun shop owners helped inform your work. What's their predicament? Why are they interested in these conversations? They've heard at times from customers, maybe wondering what to do about dad, and also maybe have noticed among longtime clients, say, you know, many ranges are membership kind of situations. And so maybe that someone who's been coming in for years seems to be declining somewhat and wondering what you do. What do you do? Yeah. Well, ideally, this is not about confiscation. This is not about gun control. This is ideally about helping people and their families make decisions before there are injuries or deaths or dangerous situations. But it's about thinking ahead and assessing, is somebody still safe to have access uh, to a firearm? And in some cases, I think it might be that someone could be safe when they're with someone else. So maybe it's still okay to go hunting every year together, say, but maybe you don't want them to have unsupervised access. Uh, You know, I think when somebody's 
thinking declines to the point that they're pretty confused or not recognizing things, I think we would all agree that probably they shouldn't have access to potentially dangerous items. Uh, which can also include an automobile, which yeah, exactly. is why, why you included it in safety in dementia. And so inherently in dementia, are there opportunities then to take a firearm without that person knowing and, and kind of safely move it off the premises? Is that what you're suggesting? You know, in some cases, it may be that they can remove a, a firearm and sell it or, you know, give it to the police. And the person with dementia never notices. But what do you do if it's somebody who's used to cleaning their gun every day and they're going to get really agitated if suddenly it's gone? I think that's where these discussions and decisions get more nuanced. Well, and I also hear sometimes that dementia can make people frustrated. It can lead them to bursts of anger, like mid to late stage. So that's another element here, isn't it? Right. And that's one of the things we talk about on the site, and we've heard loud and clear from other people, um, to remind caregivers that it's the disease, it's not the person, that sometimes can lead to the paranoia, the agitation, the anxiety, the behavior changes. So it might be that someone has always been extremely responsible and safe with firearms or driving, but now the disease has changed them and it's time to do something different. In the case of someone who will be especially perturbed, though, what do you do? Well, so I think that's a case where you might think about disabling the weapon in a way that the person with dementia might not, not actually notice. So, for example, taking the firing pin out. This is something you should not try to do yourself if you don't know how to do it, but you can get help from, say, a gun store. Huh. The weapon then looks normal but might, you know, would not be fireable, and uh, that might reduce the anxiety in that person, but still make sure everyone is safe. I should point out the one caveat I hear from people with that is if for some reason the police were called to the home for some kind of disturbance, they wouldn't know that the weapon was mm. disabled. But I think this is where it gets to, as a family, you, you do what is right. And I would advocate that anyone who has firearms in their home think about what they want to happen eventually with those, um, should they become impaired. So but, a discussion before any disease presents, I mean, when, e even if you don't yeah, anticipate. wouldn't that be amazing? In the same way we think about advanced care planning, you know, would you want full resuscitation and so forth? We talked about this with driving, too. Who would you trust to tell you when you're no longer safe? Ah. So it might be that someone with very early onset cognitive impairment might choose to make some of these decisions themselves. Otherwise, if things have progressed, um, ideally family members, they can think through what's the situation right now in terms of who's living in the home, where's the person living who owns the weapons, are they showing any signs of paranoia, agitation, those things we talked about. Are they going to get really anxious if the weapons are gone? Does the family want to keep the weapons in the family long term or do they actually want to sell them or give them away? Those kinds of considerations to think about to figure out what the option is. And the options basically come down to Locking weapons securely at home so the person with dementia can't access them. Disabling weapons. Temporarily moving weapons out of the home and storing them somewhere else. Or permanently getting rid of them. That might be selling them. That might be taking them to a police station to just give them away. What other safety considerations are there when it comes to loved ones with dementia? As I mentioned, it's really anything that could be potentially dangerous. So we on the site, we also talk about things like power tools. You think about... Um, people wandering away from the home and so thinking about different locks on the doors. Unsupervised access in the kitchen can be dangerous as mm. well. You know, we developed this resource because we felt like there was really a gap concerning the firearms piece, but we wanted to put it in the context of all these other things that people are thinking about. Tools. Exactly. Well, yeah. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
Dr. Emmy Betts of the CU School of Medicine, co-creator of the new site safetyindementia.org. A former Denver Poet Laureate and award-winning author died Monday. Chris Rancic was 57 and had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. One of his friends told the Denver Post, Rancic was just a real mensch, Yiddish, for a good guy. We spoke with Rancic several times over the years. He reflected on one of his works, Poem for a Cold Walk Home, set in winter, and it's about cherished moments from his childhood in New York. I wrote that poem. It's largely autobiographical. As a boy, I had a paper route, and I would finish that paper route, and I would catch a creek that ran nearby, and I, I carry my hockey skates with me. And I'd just slip those on, and I would skate home rather than walk home. It was a little longer, but, but it sure was fun. Rivers weren't the only place Rancic skated. There was a pond not far from my house, uh, probably a quarter mile away, and I would walk through the woods to get to it. And this place was called Hoops Park. And we skated there. We would take shovels over and, and clear off the snow, and we would skate there and play pond hockey. One place where I could be better than my older brothers, I was a better skater than them, so I could steal my older brother's hat and skate away, and he would just have to chase me. And uh, I just have a lot of fond memories with the winter season and, uh, and family, brothers, uh, you know, friends playing outdoors. Rancic later moved to Colorado, of course, where he taught English and creative writing for decades. I just always have felt that writing was an integral part of paying attention to the world, turning experience into language, and then being able to offer it to other people. Uh, very important. Perhaps the best way to put this is that you're not the most important thing, uh, that the world around you is what you're graphing, not the self. In words that now seem prophetic, Chris Rancic shared how some of his winter writings touch on the concept of death. One of the things the seasons do for us is probably overstating it here, but it makes it okay in a sense. If you get through winter, I think you experience the the little death of the landscape and you recognize that death is absolutely a niche on the cycle and everything's going through it. So at least for me anyway, um, winter has a solemnity to it, but no fear. That is Chris Rancic, Denver's Poet Laureate from 2006 to 2010. He died Monday at age 57. It's coming on Christmas, they're cutting down trees, they're putting up reindeer and singing songs of joy and peace. Oh, I wish I had a river I could skate away on. But it don't snow here, it stays pretty green. I'm gonna make a lot of money, then I'm gonna quit this crazy scene. I wish I had a river I could skate away on. I wish I had a river so long I would teach my feet to Ryan Warner, this is CPR News.